Well, hey there. Welcome back to the Ridley Institute podcast. I'm Sam Forniker, joined today by Dr. Paul Copen. Paul is the Pledger Family Chair of Philosophy and Ethics at Palm Beach Atlantic University and author of something like 40 books, uh, many of which grapple with quite thorny issues, uh, including the subject of our conversation today, which is, drumroll please, violence in the Bible. Uh, One of Paul's previous books was entitled, Is God a Moral Monster? Did God Really Command Genocide? And that book has now got a sequel in Paul's most recent book, published just last year with Baker Academic and very well received, Is God a Vindictive Bully? reconciling portrayals of God in the Old and New Testament. So, Paul, I've been really keen for this conversation for some time. Thanks for, for joining me for a chat. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Sam, and appreciate the thoroughness with which you've gone through the book and looking forward to unpacking uh, the the questions. And uh, thanks so much for having me. It's a total pleasure. I hope the questions do the book justice. Um, so let's just get right into it, um, Paul. You know, many um, many of us, many listening, will have encountered this argument. Maybe even some listeners um, have found themselves advancing it uh, on their own. That, um, that that a certain gap separates the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, or 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 at least that a gap separates how the Bible depicts the one God in the Old and New Testament. Uh, so the Old Testament, the argument goes, shows us a God of wrath. The New Testament a God of love. And a common example given by such folks is, is kind of like this. Think of how the Old Testament and New Testament differ in their approach to what we call the lex talionis, the law of just retribution. Um, in the Old Testament, for example, Leviticus 24, God says to Moses, if anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's the, the, the lex talionis, the, the principle of just retribution. But Again, the argument goes, fast forward to Matthew 5, and suddenly here's Jesus saying what seems to be just the opposite. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. So so here's a case where Jesus in Matthew seems to be contradicting the Lord in Leviticus. You know, so the critic wants to say, what's up with that? Um... The same thing with the imprecatory psalms, the cursing psalms, you know, like 137, blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock, or or Psalm 109, may his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. The critic says, you know, how do you square these with Jesus? Uh, You know, the 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 one gentle Jesus, meek and mild, you know, who says, let the little children come to me. Um, So I wonder if we could just start by flagging up the kinds of questions that these apparently conflicting depictions of God in the Old and New Testaments raise. Uh, I wonder, Paul, maybe if if you could um, point out some of the questions that you were encountering, which most impacted the design of uh, your book, Is God a Vindictive Bully? What, what sorts of questions um, were you wanting to help readers think through as you conceived and executed the book. <laughs> Maybe poor choice of words with executed there, but you know what I mean. <laughs> sure. Uh, I, of course, am, as you said, build, I'm building on what I covered in the book, Is God a Moral Monster? And I am trying to extend the discussion to new questions that weren't raised in the Moral Monster book, and ones that I have gotten from people saying, why didn't you deal with this question or that question in your Moral Monster book? And it's uh, typically a space uh, sort of issue where you can't cover everything. And so I've uh, added more material looking at issues, again, dealing with some new material on warfare, on servitude in the Old Testament, uh, on women, and so forth. For example, people said, hey, could you spend more time looking at Leviticus 25 and the and the nature of servitude, uh, foreign servants in Israel, and how do you unpack Leviticus 25? So I spent three chapters on that uh, this time around, uh, doing more and, and, and new insights on warfare in the Old Testament and so forth. But I deal with questions such as Elisha and the bears, the flood of Noah, the firstborn of Egypt, God's hardening Pharaoh's heart, the imprecatory Psalms, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, and 
you know, on and on it goes. So there are uh, a number of new questions that I'm raising, but I'm also casting it into a casting it in a in a way that just isn't looking at critics from. Uh, you know, from like the new atheist, which I did in my in my moral monster book. So, uh, so I've got a kind of a twin concerns that I have as I'm I'm addressing uh, the book to uh, particular critics, and so we'll we'll talk about that in the next question. You know, yeah, I was going to say uh, that would be actually a great place to turn next. So, um, you make you know you make it clear in the beginning of the book these questions are acutely felt i mean obviously outside of the church you think of dawkins and Ed, and company but they're also felt within the church and um and so you've got these two sort of groups or camps of critics that you in- engage with can you just introduce us to these two camps paul the critics within and the critics without i mean each each camp tries to drive wedges in in some ways between the old and the new testaments um, who are they and, and how are they trying to drive those wedges? Well, a key text that I'm utilizing is Romans 11:22, New Testament. Uh, Paul is saying, behold then the kindness and severity of God. And as I'm dealing with two kinds of critics, I am responding to say the atheistic, you know, the new Richard Dawkins types, uh, who say that the God of the Old Testament is severe. Uh, Richard Dawkins says the God of the Old Testament is the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. And so I'm uh, pushing back on that question because uh, they neglect the kindness of God. They emphasize the severity and they ignore the kindness of God and, uh, and often dismiss passages that really bring illumination and clarity to a lot of the severe texts that God is often patient. Uh, God is displaying his uh, renewal uh, of the covenant, uh, that God doesn't give up on human beings, doesn't give up on Israel, that God works uh, with a, a messy human situation. And so that's often ignored by the, the critics from without the church. Then they're critics from within, and they are the ones who want to emphasize the kindness of God, but ignore uh, or undermine or diminish the severity of God. Uh, so people like Greg Boyd and uh, Peter Enns and uh, Eric Seibert, who uh, who maintain that there is a, you know, that, for example, when it says, thus says the Lord uh, in the Old Testament, well, Greg Boyd and and others would say, well, it's not necessarily the Lord speaking here. It depends if it's kind or if it's severe. If it's severe, no, God didn't say it. Uh, but if it's kind, then yes, th- this is what God says. This is the actual God who loves his enemies as kind and so forth, uh, who is revealed in Jesus Christ, who says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, but if there's something like drive out the Canaanites, well, that's got to be the textual God of the fallen ancient Near Eastern author or prophet like Moses or Joshua. Uh, that can't be the actual God because that goes against what Jesus is saying. Well, as I look, as we look more closely at the biblical text, we show that the these critics from within the church uh, are often cherry-picking, often very selective in their methodology, uh, ignoring passages very clearly spelled, spelled out in the New Testament where we see a very severe Jesus, uh, a Jesus who is engaged in not only turning over uh, the temple the temples, tables, where the money changers are, uh, but also passages like Jude 5, where our best manuscripts say, Jesus, Jesus, after he had delivered the Israelites from Egypt, destroyed those who did not believe. Or Jesus, who is in red letters, saying to the uh, to the you know, the, you know, the church of uh, you know Thyatira and Jezebel, there's this false prophetess. And Jesus says in chapter 2, uh, verses 20 to 23, he says he's going to cast Jezebel on a bed of sickness, and he is going to strike dead her followers. And we can go on. There are other texts. We talk about the wrath of the Lamb. We can talk about uh, Ananias and Sapphira being struck down. We can talk about uh, the angel of the Lord striking down the you know, striking down Herod, uh, the same angel of the Lord that leads uh, Peter out of prison in Acts chapter 12. Both of those, you know, the angel of the Lord shows up you know, twice in that chapter, uh, one for deliverance, one for destruction. 
So that's the type of thing that uh, gets ignored by people like Greg Boyd. And, and so I'm pushing back on their scripture selectivity and their uh, flawed hermeneutic. You prompted me uh, to remember, by the way, when you said the bit about red letters, I, I don't know if you know Fred Sanders out at Biola, but Fred's got mm -hmm. a great sense of humor. I read somewhere Fred wrote, wouldn't it be a great idea if we had something called a Holy Spirit translation where all of the text was in red? <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's very good. I know what you mean. You um, yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, great, 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 really helpful. So, so um, you know, when by the time we get into the second part of the the book, you've kind of broken the book down into chunks. I think this is probably the the least unwieldy way to to approach it. By the time we get to the second part uh, of your book, we're we're asking a question that's going to frame much of what follows. And, and the question I think is this: What is it that makes the Old Testament, the Law of Moses? different from, you know, your garden variety, ancient Near Eastern law code? What makes Israel's law special? Um, you suggest that believers are often penned into a false either or here. Either, uh, it is said, uh, you know, we need to say that the Old Testament law was divinely given by God, or we have to say that Moses nicked it from contemporary law codes. Um, now, we've got good theological grounds for, for doubting that um, that we need to buy into that either or I think the I think the incarnation makes that you know um, uh, a, a reasonable thing to to doubt I think you know John Stott in his book Evangelical Truth um, this, sorry this is a bit of a tangent but it but it's worth throwing in here I think you know in Evangelical Truth John Stott talks about how the the incarnation establishes an analogous logic for our view of the Bible. So we so we don't we don't view it's it takes the either or out of the equation is what I'm saying. So we don't view it as Muslims do the Quran. We don't eliminate the human and wind up with kind of a scriptural Apollinarianism. So we speak of texts, of authors, and so on. But neither do we view it as modern secular critics, eliminating the divine, you know, like a like a scriptural adoptionism. So we recognize inspiration, revelation, etc. And so I think an argument could very much be made for rejecting this either or. Um, but it's a, it's a good question because it invites us to consider what God was up to in ancient Israel by drawing a distinction. This is the distinction you draw between biblical laws and biblical vision. Laws being the mechanism for, for securing certain ends. But the vision, uh, the worldview, um, you know, defining and shaping Israel's priorities. So uh, apologies for the long on-ramp, Paul, but you know, in, in what ways do you think it can help us to approach the Old Testament law from the vantage of, of worldview? When we are looking at, say, a text like Matthew 19.8, where Jesus is commenting on divorce law in, Math, in, in Deuteronomy 24, he says that Moses permitted divorce because of the hardness of your hearts that you will have, you know, what's called, uh, you know, you'll have this casuistic law that you, if then, if this is the case, then you do that. Uh, that if someone steals something, then this is what is to happen. Uh, so you have, you know, you, you, then you've got what's called the apodictic commands, like the Ten Commandments, uh, where, you know, the thou shalts uh, that are straightforward and direct and, uh, you know, non-negotiable. Uh, so when we look at the biblical vision, we see that as distinct from what, say, Moses permitted because of the hardness of human hearts. That doesn't reflect the vision, because Jesus goes on to say from the beginning, from creation, it was not so. Uh, you have biblical laws that assume that human beings will sin, that human beings are fallen, that there are certain things that take place in the ancient Near East, like polygamy and warfare and so forth that are not uh, optimal by any means. And so God meets human beings where they are and tries to move them in a redemptive direction. And so often it's a, an attempt to recover the, the, the priorities of creation, the fundamental equality of man and woman in Genesis chapter one, uh, that there is no classism uh, in the biblical vision, that, uh, that all human beings are equal, uh, that uh, there is no slave class or something like that, uh, as you had in the ancient Near East in the nations surrounding Israel. There is no, you know, you know that marriage is between one man and one, one woman, uh, who are to be one flesh for one lifetime, not polygamy or anything 
anything like that. And so, uh, so you know, first comes love, then comes marriage, and then you know the 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 babies and the baby carriage. Uh, so these are the priorities that we see in uh, the biblical structure of things, even though there may be accommodations on the part of God to human sin. Again, it doesn't mean that the law is sinful. Paul talks about the law being holy and just and spiritual and so forth in Romans chapter 7. Uh, but there are uh, but there are some accommodations to human sin, to human uh, flaws, to, uh, to these fallen structures that exist. So God, like I said, meets human beings where they are, uh, but it's a, it's an elevated level, and he points them in a, another direction, a, a re, you know, an elevated direction uh, to restore some of those priorities that are articulated in the creation account. Uh, that, so, Paul, I think that's very helpful because it reminds us that part of what we're doing here is learning to read our Bibles better, <laughs> um, yeah, right. m- more sensitively, and so on. I I, I, I really appreciate that um, that. That focus on worldview. It, you know, it, it also strikes me that when we focus on worldview, it helps us to perceive certain ways in which Israel, as the Lord's covenant family, differed from the nations uh, around them. This is a great point that you, I mean, you return through it to this in you know, many, many places in other works and this work. You highlight two principal areas uh, in, in this book where Israel's approach, Israel's, you know, world vision diverged from the kind of ancient Near Eastern consensus. Um, So we've got human dignity on the one hand, poverty and wealth on the other. Um, Just on dignity, I was struck, you know, I just a couple of weeks ago had a conversation with Paul Lewis Metzger on on this book, More Than Things, A Personalist Ethics for a Throwaway Culture, which is an awesome book. But in your chapter on human dignity, yeah, I'm just reminded that this ethical framework uh, Paul's, that, that Paul uh, Metzger is working with, personalism, finds its roots in Old Testament law. Because the idea mm-hmm. that all persons deserve to be treated as more than things, hence his title, uh, that um, was not at all a popular view in the ancient Near East. Is that, is that fair to say? Yes. And I, as you indicate, I do spend a couple of chapters, uh, in fact, in my book, Is God a Vindictive Bully?, showing point for point some of these significant worldview differences between the law of Moses and other ancient law collections in the, you know, the, in, in the, during the time of, uh, of Israel, ancient Israel. And I, you know, as you indicate, I highlight that the worldview of Israel assumes the intrinsic dignity of human beings, the the moral agency, the fundamental equality. Israel has a democratized understanding of the uh, of how society is to be ordered. You know, when your brother or sister uh, does this or that, so there is this fundamental equality. Yeah, but in the ancient Near Eastern law codes outside of Israel, you have a presumption of a hierarchy of worth. Uh, that some people are worth more than others. Uh, some people don't. Uh, des- you know, some people, if they are higher on the in the social ladder, they're part of the nobility, part of the elite. Then the punishments against them are diminished or minimized, uh, as opposed to those who are lower on the social ladder. Uh, the punishments are much more severe against them. So you ha- you don't have that kind of a uh, kind of a a corresponding punishment scale uh, according to where you stand in in Israel. Uh, it is something that is for all people. It's one size fits all. You see somebody like a prophet Nathan confronting the king of Israel, David, uh, when he has uh, committed murder and has engaged in adultery with Bathsheba. So, so there is an accountability that there is a, uh, you know, that the king just can't get away with what he wants. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, for example, talks about certain things that the king must not do, uh, lest he become ensnared and become a stumbling block to his own people. And so, uh, so you see point for point the concern with within Israel for the individual, the equal rights for all, uh, for the common person, you know, for the for the native as well as for the foreigner who are living in Israel, that the law was to apply to all of them, and so you see this attempt at democratization, of bringing the a fundamental leveling of the playing field uh, for all people, which you just don't have in 
other cultures surrounding Israel during that time. Uh, so, so yeah, you do, you, that's something that is key. And there is uh, some people have made a distinction between the law of persons and the law of things. And, and you just have a stronger emphasis on what belongs to people, uh, p- harsh punishments for doing damage to stuff rather than uh, doing something to a slave in, 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 in the ancient Near East. So there are these remarkable differences between uh, Israel and the surrounding nations, which is why uh, you know, Deuteronomy, for example, says that when you li- actually live out this law, Israel, when you are doing the things that God commands you, the nations around will see what a wise people this is what a wise and understanding people this is that they are to be to you know to live out that elevated vision uh, that you know, that God has imparted to them for you know for to be a light to the nations. Yeah, as, so Paul, as you were um, as you were speaking, I my one of my kids, uh, I've got four. One of one of my kids uh, had to go to his room the other day, okay. uh, and I find that he's been peeling paint off of the the door frame right so uh, my you know my my gut response is to pitch a fit at my kid for ruining this door frame which he now needs to you know the discipline compounds and oh dear and i was reminded of this kind of parental dynamic which is in a way reflected in these ancient near eastern cultures there's a, such a value on the thing um that there is when when we stand back and and watch certainly from our sort of, uh, let's, let's call it a post-Pentecost vantage point. Um, we just say, oh, wow, we've got our, we got our priorities entirely mismatched. And there's a, um, in the same way that my um, inability to get past the peeling of the paint on the door frame might manifest, a, you know, a, a, a slavery to my, um, you know, my own dispositions and, and passions and an inability to effectively discipline my child right? Because I can't right. see past the small thing. Um, there's, yeah. there's also a kind of, there's a kind of slavery that we see in, uh, at work in the ancient Near Eastern um, uh, law codes, uh, which, which just adds to the power of, um, for example, the Exodus narrative. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I, I hugely appreciate that. It, it helped me understand what you quoted Chris Wright. Um, you know, Chris talks about Israel's socially decentralized and non-hierarchical worldview, and um, mm-hmm. the, the way in which you brought that distinction out. Um, you know, between the law of persons and law of things, uh, I, I think is a is a super helpful framework for people to have in mind. Just reminds you of the uh, the the importance of that saying: the most important things in life aren't things. Uh, so, uh, so you but you do have that kind of a reversed. Uh, priority in uh, much of the ancient Near Eastern legislation, which does does emphasize property and severe penalties that go along with uh, damage to property or theft of property uh, and uh, lesser penalties, uh, you know, that when it comes to people who have been injured, say, especially in the uh, who are on the lower uh, end of the social ladder. So, Paul, when we get to the next part, then part four, which is entitled For Whom the Bell Tolls, we now get into the weeds, right? We get into a series of especially challenging matters. Um, and I'd just like to focus on one because it was a matter that even got C.S. Lewis's wires crossed. This is one of those rare places where um, I think we're we're right to, um, to, you know, to say that St. Clive got it wrong. And, and that's the matter of the imprecatory psalms, the cursing psalms. Um, but, you know, Bonhoeffer... Um, didn't didn't get it I, quite so outstandingly wrong as, as Lewis did, but still I think um, you know left much to be desired. So to, to, so tell us about the imprecatory psalms, and, and what are what 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 are they, and what are the issues that critics are, are you know, where do critics take issue with them? The imprecatory psalms are prayer curse psalms. They are calling on God to bring judgment upon certain persons who are uh, acting in violent ways, who are acting treacherously, who are dehumanizing others, who are oppressing others. And so it, it, it's not something that is a matter of taking matters into one's own hands. It's not a, a matter of vigilante justice here but calling upon God to do what he said he would do to those who oppress, 
the innocent, uh, to those who are engaging in, say, you know, harmful, dehumanizing activity. And so, so when we come to the imprecatory psalms, it, it does seem to go against what Jesus says, you know, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and so forth. And, well, you know, is there a place for the imprecatory psalms in the New Testament, or is the, you know, is the gospel uh, completely antithetical to what these imprecatory psalms are expressing? Uh, so, so on that, I think it's important to remember a few things. One, the imprecatory psalms, of course, as I said, are calling upon God to bring about justice, to bring an end to oppression. Uh, secondly, the psalms are also uh, not personal. Uh, you know, it's not as though there's there's some attempt to uh, to do this to someone who's just my personal enemy who doesn't like me. Uh, there's something much more weighty to the moral grievances involved here. There are some things to keep in mind as a like, for example, Psalm 137, which is, as C.S. Lewis said, the uh, you know kind of the most a horrific text of them all, uh, where, you know, blessed is the one who dashes your little ones against the rocks. Well, how do we interpret something like that? Well, there are some interpreters who see this as merely, uh, you know, not a, a, it's not a precise theological judgment here, but simply a matter of expressing emotion when it is white hot, and it's not as though it's being processed through kind of a rational uh, you, know, kind of, you know, time of you know, where, where you've had time to cool off and think about it more. This is just in the, in the rage of the moment. So some people will say that's just merely expressing something that may not be theologically precise uh, or, or, or right, uh, but it simply is reflecting the emotion of the psalmist, uh, much like when Jeremiah and Jeremiah 20 says to the Lord, you deceived me and I was deceived. Now, it's not as though the Lord was deceiving, but that's how uh, how Jeremiah felt. So that's one possible way of looking at that text. There are other uh, other ways you could you'd see it as hyperbolic. Uh, that this is something that is an, an exaggeration that wasn't intended to be taken literally, uh, no more so than, say, the trees of the field clapping their hands in Isaiah 55. Or uh, you have uh, you know, the, you know, who is the daughter of Babylon? Uh, well, the daughter of Babylon is the those who are in charge, uh, the the royal house. And so what the psalmist is doing is calling on these children, namely the offspring of royalty, to you know, for God to bring an end to this tyrannical rule, to bring an end to those who continue to oppress generation after generation. Uh, so it's not as though it's just little uh, kind of little ones, uh, you know, innocent children. Uh, this is something where we're dealing with kind of bringing an end to those who have this reputation uh, for oppression generation after generation. So I, I, in, in my book, I go into all of these things. But let me just say this as we continue on that theme of imprecation. The New Testament does not bring an end to Calling God to calling on God to bring judgment upon people. Think of say Revelation chapter six, where the the redeemed saints under the altar are calling out uh, to God, saying, "How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood that has been shed by those who dwell upon the earth?" They're in heaven, uh, and so so, but they're they're righteous. It, righteously calling on God to do what he said he would do, namely to render to everyone according to his deeds. Uh, we also have uh, Jesus himself saying, be better to have a uh, those who lead my little ones astray to have a millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Uh, we have, again, Jesus doing things and uh, promising to do things that are severe, that are harsh. And we even see the language of the imprecatory psalms carried over into the New Testament. We see two imprecatory psalms quoted in the book of Acts right at the beginning. Uh, you, know, you know, let his place be made desolate, let another take his office. Uh, the, this is One of these is quoting from Psalm 109, which C.S. Lewis said was the worst of the psalms. Uh, and uh, but but again, here it is being quoted. 
the Apostle Paul quotes the imprecatory, you know, quotes uh, Psalm, you know, he quotes again another imprecatory psalm in, in Romans chapter 11, uh, again call, calling on God to bring judgment upon uh, hard hearted Israelites, you know, that their eyes would be blinded, that their backs would be broken or bent. Uh, again, this is New Testament in light of the gospel. So the gospel, yes, it calls on us to, to pray for our personal enemies, uh, to, but also there's a room within the overall structure. Even though imprecatory psalms are diminished, the curse is diminished in the New Testament, it doesn't go away. And so we see the language of woe, for example, in, in, uh, you know, which is sometimes parallel to the word cursed. Uh, you know, in the Old Testament, we see Jesus using that language of woe in in Matthew 23 when he's uh, he excoriating the the scribes and the Pharisees. But we also see that uh, that in the given the wickedness that exists in the world, as N.T. Wright said, sometimes people are just so wicked that we have to pray judgment upon them. That uh, that uh, you know, in in in, in Luke 18. The woman who is the widow who is asking, you know, pleading for justice from the unrighteous judge, and 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 Jesus says, "How much more? You know, God is not an unrighteous judge, but the, how much more will will God bring justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night?" So there is this call for God to bring justice against oppressors. And, uh, and and there is a rejoicing that comes, say in the book of Revelation, rejoice over Babylon that has fallen because she is the one that has been oppressing the, the prophets and the apostles and the saints and so forth. So there is call for rejoicing when judge justice comes, when judgment has been carried out by God in a just way. I think, Paul, that's uh, particularly helpful. I mean, it uh, uh, prompts a couple of thoughts for me. I mean, the, you know, the, the first of which um, is an observation that I won't really go anywhere with. It's just simply that, you know, in, in, in Romans 11, it was Romans 11, you were saying, where, where, where mm-hmm. Paul quotes the imprecatories. Um, yeah. This is, of course, just on the, on the coattails of Paul having, um, it, 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 just as Moses had done, um, almost also almost anath- wishing an anathema a curse upon himself for the mm-hmm. for the sake of his fellow Israelites so it's just interesting right. that even there you've you've got you've got a tension which which I I mentioned to highlight the, the kind of intrinsic tension of, of prayer and as you said mm-hmm. these these aren't stated as propositional um, uh, truths and um, and yet that doesn't detract for you know one one um, one jot. From the um, the authority of Scripture, it it right. it also strikes me um, that um, that it's it, it is easy for us to as as you know the the decadent West to to play down um, the the reality of actually having an enemy and you know a real enemy because mm-hmm. most of us don't have them. You know, we have people that we don't like at work or we have, you know, mm-hmm. mother-in-laws we don't particularly get along with or whatever. I mean, not me, <laughs> you know. But mm-hmm. um, but we don't have we don't have real enemies. And so I've I've appreciated I I like the show uh, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul. I've I've enjoyed Vince Gilligan's shows. I I just think there's a, a lot they're 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 extremely dark, but they mm-hmm. they they're not cynical. You're still in a moral universe. You're just in the seedy underbelly, but you know that you're in a moral universe. Um, and, and Gilligan, at one point, I, I believe he was dating a, a, a Christian, um, but I know he said, I, "I want to believe there's a heaven, but I can't not believe there's a hell." You know, he was he's and he's speaking about uh, what he was depicting in 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 Breaking Bad. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, just just the other day, I was reading at First Things a, a, a column by uh, George Weigel about uh, Archbishop. I'm going to uh, just really mess up the name Zviatoslav Shevchuk. That's the best that I can do. And um, he was in he was in Bucha uh, in, in Ukraine. And um, th- this is what uh, Weigel reports from from the Archbishop. Um, about his visit to Bucha. He said, we prayed in one place in in Bucha, which had bullet marks where many boys were executed. And after this prayer, we had a chance to stay a few hours and just to talk. I remember one man 
with profound blue eyes who stayed silent. Finally, I spoke to him, and he shared how he had come there to find the body of his 22-year-old son, whose name was Sviatoslav. He told me, I saw my son with gouged-out eyes. The people of Bucha told me that Russian troops were committing those crimes in preparation for a big ethnic cleansing in Kiev. If Russia had entered the city, Kiev would have been flooded with human blood. They were well prepared for such a crime, but in a mysterious way, we are alive. I would consider each day of my life today as a miracle. So, uh, you know, again, to be uh, the archbishop there is an example of someone who who, who knows what it might be to, to pray an imprecatory psalm rightly. I, I think in, in my own Anglican world of Ben and Gloria Quashi, um, whose stories are, are, are very moving, and I won't go into them here, but but again. Um, mm-hmm. uh, also, Paul, your point on page 138, which I just want to bring out here, praying the imprecatory psalms can remind us um, that, that just occasionally we might be the ones on the offending end of the psalm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so praying through them... Um, sometimes can be beneficial for us from the standpoint of um, uh, getting us out of the kind of standpoint of the innocent, if you know what I mean. Yeah, one of the things that I uh, bring out is, you know, and I draw on Psalm 139, where you have the, of course, the psalmist at the beginning, you know, Lord, you have searched me and known me, Uh, you know, and he talks about not being able to get away from the presence of the Lord, and this is a great comfort for him. And then he goes on to say, oh, that you would slay the wicked, just kind of shifts gears all of a sudden. Uh, and so so that's one gear shift there that is pretty dramatic. So you have this acknowledgement of who God is and, and the psalmist's relationship to God, but also an awareness of wickedness that is taking place in the world. And so the psalmist is siding with God, uh, don't I hate those who hate you? In other words, he's saying, I, look, God, I'm taking your side in this. I, I'm aligning myself with your attitude toward these things. I'm drawing a line in the sand and I'm siding with you uh, as opposed to them. Uh, and then he goes on to say, uh, you know, search me, O God. Another another shift, kind of downshifting here, saying, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead, lead me in the everlasting way. So there is a, and, and as I kind of summarize these, uh, what our attitude to, should be toward the imprecatory psalms and how we should appropriate them. Uh, first of all, I think we need to uh, pray that God would work in the hearts of people. We do want to see people come to salvation. We we do want to see people who uh, you know who are opposed to the gospel, like the Apostle Paul, uh, coming you know coming to salvation. So we ought to rejoice in that and desire that. But uh, some people, as you know, I mentioned with N.T. Wright, continue to be so wicked that we can only pray judgment upon them. So, uh, but also we need to examine our own hearts in that process that we don't become filled with vindictiveness or this becomes kind of a settled attitude uh, within our own hearts. And so, so I summarize it as being, Lord, work in their hearts, or if they persist, stop their hearts, but examine my heart. And so that's the, that's kind of the triad that I follow. And I think that that uh, I think maps well with what is going on in the imprecatory psalms. Yeah, yeah, that's very, very helpful. Um, uh, just to shift gears a little bit, Paul, this is this is a reference work, your book. So listeners are just going to need to go and read it for themselves um, to, to get into uh, the the granular uh, studies of individual passages. But, you know, we, we can highlight a few themes Um so many read the Old Testament, and uh, you know, it, and it's precisely because their you know regenerate instincts are at work. They find in certain texts uh, instructions that seem to call for ways of treating women and slaves in ancient Israel um, that modern people rightly find hard to swallow. Uh, so think of the patriarchs' polygamy of you know David's countless shenanigans of Moses' allowance in Numbers 31 for virgins in conquered lands to be taken as brides by Israelite soldiers. These, uh, you know, we, we read these scriptures and, and they and they raise our hackles, rightly. Um, but, I, but I think it's also clear that there's much that we're missing here. 
And we can know that because even a cursory comparison of Israel with its ancient Near Eastern neighbor shows us how distinctive its social vision was. Um, for example, you point out in the book, uh, this sent me down a, a, a bit of a rabbit trail, in, a horrifying rabbit trail in preparation. War rape was, was a reality of ancient Near Eastern culture. Bill Webb and uh, uh, Gordon uh, East, if that's how you pronounce his, West, his yeah. Yeah, West, there you go, um, show, you know, just with awful detail in, in their book, Bloody, Brutal, and Barbaric, Wrestling with Troubling War Texts. So war rape is, is, is a, a major, you know, unquestioned reality. Uh, not so with Israel. Uh, so so, mm-hmm. so to, to, just to stick with the theme of personhood, uh, how does the Old Testament social vision, and I mean even in the most difficult texts, uphold, let's just focus on women, uh, uphold mm-hmm. the personhood of women over against the very institutions of, for example, sex slavery or, or war rape that were utterly right. ubiquitous in the ancient Near East? Yeah, a few things to keep in mind. Of course, we look at the very beginning where the vision is set in Genesis 1, where there's a fundamental equality between male and female. We see this carried over into, say, the law, uh, honor your father and your mother, not honor your father and a piece of furniture or something like that. Uh, we also see that in even in warfare, the Israelites had specific instructions for how to treat those who were female prisoners of war, that they are to be treated with respect. So you have, you know, and of course the the understanding was in ancient Israel that sexual relations came after you were married. That was the context in which uh, sexual relations were to take place uh, between a man and a woman. And so you have in Deuteronomy 21, the picture of someone who wants to take a, a woman as a bride And again, keep in mind that there weren't a whole lot of options for women who had lost their husbands in war. Uh, There was often a, you know, they they were just would be low on the totem pole, uh, being pretty much considered used, used goods in the minds of the, the culture around them. But here, you know, but but again, here you have the, you know, here you have the opportunity for uh, Israelites to incorporate people into their households as servants and so forth, uh, not to, you know, and, and so to to give, say, women who are you know, who lost their husbands to become servants within the land of Israel and attach themselves to uh, to households in Israel, and as John Golden Gay says, those who were in that kind of a situation, uh, who were part. Of, they were. It said they were. You're, you become part of the family. Uh, this is something that was. Uh, you know, you were. You were part of the structure of the family. So it had a humanizing element to them, uh, to it, to it. And so you also have you know those who are say virgins who are unmarried. Well, you, the soldier has the possibility of marrying someone from another culture, but there's a month long wait where she clips her nails, shaves her hair, uh, puts on, uh, you know, kind of uh, mourning, clothing of mourning to say goodbye to her previous life and to be, uh, in a sense, transitioned into another way of life within Israel. And so this woman, uh, it can be married, so there's no sexual relationship until there is a marriage. And uh, and if the, the man decides not to marry her, she is not to be treated uh, with dishonor. So, so you have this this regard for those who are in a bad way, those who are women after, uh, you know, in the wake of battle. But there is no no such thing as uh, war rape that takes place. In fact, uh, you, when you look at people in Israel who are men who are at war, uh, one thing that they do avoid is having sexual relations with women. I think of, you know, you know, think of, uh, you know, uh, you think of, the you know David when he is going to the uh, to the you know to Abimelech the pre, you know the the, the um, uh, at Nob uh, and and he takes the showbread from the from the priest there and the priest asks have your have any of your men had sexual relations with women uh, David says no uh, you have um, Uriah the Hittite instead of engaging in sexual relations during this time of battle when he comes home he says I'm not going to do that while my while my my fellow soldiers are out there fighting on the front lines so there's this sense of you know of abstaining from these things rather than than just plunging ahead and engaging in a war rape. That was just something that's outside the parameters of Israel's sexual ethic. So 
so those are some things that are uh, that ought to be kept in mind. It's not op- an optimal situation. This is one of those. If you have this kind of situation, then this is how you may proceed. But it's not as though warfare is something that is wonderful and should be celebrated. This is just one of those instances of life in a fallen culture, life in a fallen world, and how do you uh, get along in that situation as best you can. Yeah, that's I love the point, Paul, that you made, um, because I had not appreciated this even kind of working through your even working through your book. Um, you may have said it. I just didn't register it about the, um, the, the 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 notion that they would be brought into the family effectively, because, of course, a, a major theme of um, of the I mean, the nature of of Israel is that they are a a family nation. Uh, they are a. Mm-hmm covenant family nation whose um, covenantal, familial uh, kind of um, way of relating and being is to spill out into the world. And of course, this is the, um, this is, this is ultimately the framework of the church too, where to have this kind of super abundant um, life as God's family, which spills out into the world. Um, and, and when you recognize that, uh, to me, very profound theological reality that's that's at work here um suddenly it kind of enables you to look at what's happening in our culture and to say well wait a minute i was just listening to a talk at the angelicum by rr reno um rusty reno at at first things Mm -hmm. and he was Mm -hmm. saying uh, this is a couple years ago now but he was saying we don't so much have polarization in our culture is speaking specifically about the united states the problem isn't so much polarization as it is radical atomization um, and I thought, you know, I hadn't thought about it that way. I, I think that might be right. Um, mm. it, it's it's a, a very um, basic inversion of what it is that, that the church can offer now and that Israel was offering then. So sorry, that, I'll climb back off my soapbox, but um, I really appreciate that point. Um, yeah. So Paul... So would you like to say anything before we? Yeah. Well, yeah, and I would. I would just say this uh, too that uh, when it comes to say things like servitude, um, in, in you know, in, in that very section that we've been talking about, that portion of the book, um, you know, we do see this humanizing element that uh, takes place. For example, someone who is a foreign servant in Israel uh, can also be. A, become a person of means in Israel, so much so that he can actually hire an Israelite servant to work for him, as Leviticus 25 indicates. Some people look at the first part of the text, they say, oh, that's terrible. You have these foreign servants and you can acquire them and so forth. Well, you keep reading later in the text and someone who is a foreigner who becomes a person of means in Israel, so there's a prospering in Israel for the foreigner, uh, that person can also uh, if he has, you know, becomes a person of means, can acquire, same term that's used, uh, kind of a legal, you know, sort of category, contractual sort of thing, can acquire an Israelite to work for him. And so there is that same kind of reciprocal language that is applied to both the Israelite and the non-Israelite. Uh, and so you you have, and as you're dealing with the question of servitude, uh, David Klein's noted Old Testament scholar uh, died fairly recently. He talked about how how fundamentally what you see going on in ancient Israel is rather than institutionalizing servitude, it's actually undermining servitude with two provisions. There's, of course, the law of the foreign runaway who comes to Israel, and 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 the law of Moses says that the foreign runaway slave, rather than being sent back to his master, which according to the Code of Hammurabi, if you didn't do that, then then you if you're harboring a runaway slave, you could be put, you know, you'd be put to death. Uh, but the foreign runaway slave who comes to Israel, the law of Moses says he should be able to settle in any of Israel's cities, rather than having sent back to his being sent back to his oppressive master. So there's the the simple op- opportunity to run away from a harsh situation, whether that's outside of Israel or even within Israel. If you're a servant and you have a harsh, uh, you know, employer, someone who, who with whom you've contracted as an indentured servant. Uh, but there's also in Exodus 21 mention of the freedom that the Israelite servant has not only to, once the term of service is ended after six years, that you can actually stay on for a lifetime, forever, 
as the as the text says, uh, Olam, that this person can be part of the household of the employer, quote, master, for the rest of his life. He's, because he says, I love my master. I want to be part of this household. And so they have a ceremony that that, that seals that into a, an official agreement. And so, so you have, on the one hand, the opportunity to run away. So the, the, there is free will to engage in running away. Secondly, there is free will to enter into servitude for the rest of your life. So it's no longer this understanding of, oh, this person is being forced against his will somehow. And even so, the people who entered into servitude in Israel did so voluntarily. It was out of poverty that you did that. It wasn't it was because you were in a difficult economic way that you, you know, that you entered into this contract and, and, and paid off your debt and you could keep a person longer than six years. But anyway, that's the kind of thing that you see fundamentally undermined. So uh, David Klein's saying, we see in these two passages, uh, servitude as an institution being deconstructed. It, it's being dismantled. This, the goal was not to institutionalize this or make it permanent in Israel. It was something that was a temporary provision, but hopefully you could become a person of means and get out of that kind of a situation. Uh, so, so again, as you read beneath the surface, as you keep reading the text, you see that there is more going on here than maybe those initial kind of gotcha texts where you say, oh, look at this. What, what about the problem here? Uh, you see that there is a broader context within the law of Moses to look out for those who are marginalized, those who could easily be oppressed, the orphan, the widow, the alien. And, uh, and, and God reminds the people three dozen times in the law of Moses, for you were once aliens in the land of Egypt. So look out for those foreigners in your midst. Don't take advantage of them. Uh, don't, uh, don't harm them. Don't abuse them uh, because you were once in the same position earlier on in your history. Paulus, we're drawing near the end of our time. I'm, I'm conscious we've we've not even um, uh, really touched on the subject of the conquest narratives. Um, now, you've you've dealt with that. I'll just let listeners know at great length in your book with Matthew Flanagan. Did God really command genocide? Um, so. Listeners can can go and and, and dig into um, as well as uh, into this book is God a vindictive bully in, into your previous book did God really command genocide? I wonder whether uh, now um, rather than getting into a particular text, you you might not offer a few guidelines for for reading conquest narratives uh, well when, when we're. Um, I remember during the height of COVID, uh, we, uh, again, I'm, I'm in an Anglican setting. At that time, we kind of had a, a Facebook uh, live, you know, daily office every morning, 7 a.m. morning prayer, you know. And um, and the lectionary w- had us in Joshua. It was just chapter mm-hmm. by chapter moving through. And I'll tell you, I, I was very aware of not being in a room with people uh, as, as I was working through those readings from Joshua and the conquest narratives. Um, they're, they're, they're tough. So um, I, what, what sorts of guidelines might you um, encourage us to embrace as we approach these texts? Well, a few things uh, that might be helpful. One is that you see the ancient Near Eastern war texts as engaging in a, a kind of trash talk that we have in our sports uh, imagery, you know, that we totally annihilated those guys, we totally destroyed them. Well, that's the same kind of language that is being applied in in a war text setting where you have uh, not a literal obliteration of people, but you simply have what could be called a, well, it may be a decisive victory. Sometimes people like pharaohs would use this language of totally obliterating the, uh, the enemy, turning them to ashes and so forth, that not one is remaining, even though they just barely eked out a victory. So they'll use that kind of sweeping language. Uh, we left no survivor. Uh, the, the, the Pharaoh alone was left and so forth. Well, you know, you look more closely at the historical circumstances and that just isn't the, the case. There's a kind of, a kind of bravado uh, about this. And we see Joshua utilizing that kind of language, although there is a, a, a bit of a qualification. So you'll read Joshua, you'll say, oh, on the one hand, it looks like there are no survivors, but then you read a chapter or two later, oh, they're back in the town and there are a lot of survivors. There are a lot of people still there. Or you have, you know, and you read Joshua chapter, sorry, Judges chapter, 
chapter one and you read repeatedly, they could not drive them out. They could not drive them out. They could not drive them out. So there's this repeated reminder that the Israelites were doing, it was a kind of a slow, gradual kind of thing rather than a sudden blitzkrieg uh, uh, you know, where, where the Canaanites were simply uh, wiped out. The, the primary, you know, so there's a lot of hyperbole and exaggeration going on. Uh, even when it says man, woman, young and old, there are not there are there are not any non there aren't any non-combatants there. For example, uh, in you know, when Saul is going to battle in First Samuel 15, he's fighting a pitched battle, uh, yeah, and he and he sends the Kenites away. Tells them at the city of Amalek, verse five, you know that that basically we don't have any grievance against you. You're our friends. So he sends them away so that he can fight the Amalekites directly. Well, you're not going to have any women and children there, even though it does say man, woman, young and old. Uh, and, 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 and what's interesting too, is you look at the Kings of, you know, the, the Amorite Kings, uh, Sihon and Og uh, in, you know, in num sorry, in, in numbers 21, where it says that the Israelites had a decisive victory against them. Well, it says uh, about them, it says the King, his sons and his army that the that the Israelites are fighting against them. Well, then you read Deuteronomy two and three, which recounts the battle. And rather being rather than it uh, being portrayed as being between uh, combatant armies, it, it just throws in this totalizing language of man, woman, young and old. Even though we know from the original battle scene that there were no women or children or elderly people there. It was just armies fighting against armies. So you can see the scriptures kind of piling on that kind of language, even though there are no actual non-combatants there. So, so that, those are a few things to keep in mind. And you know, the more closely I've looked at these various texts, the less and less I see uh, of this kind of a uh, you know, you know, total obliteration language. I mean, the primary language is to drive them out. That's the key. Uh, that's the key thing. And if you're driving them out, then you'll have uh, you'll have you know, you know, people surviving. You're not killing them, and uh, and also the, even the term. How do we translate the term? How do we translate utterly destroy? Well, sometimes it just means a decisive victory. Uh, in fact, more and more commentators on the Book of Joshua are acknowledging that it it just cannot mean that. It cannot mean utterly destroy. Uh, sometimes you can have people who are. You can have. God, for example, uh, in in uh, in Jeremiah 25, say, speaking about the exile. So this isn't a battle uh, warfare kind of setting. It's going to be an exile, and God is saying that He is going to quote utterly destroy Haram, uh, His people, Judah, you know, and leave their cities in everlasting desolation, which of course is only 70 years. Uh, you know, so the people do survive. So basically, that Haram language is something that is tantamount to exile rather than, say, destruction. Uh, so anyway, it, it, and, and maybe closing with this, uh, in, in John and Harvey Walton's book, uh, The Lost World of the Canaanite Conquest, or the Israelite Conquest, uh, they talk about the the uh, the Second World War and Nazism, and basically what you see the ultimate goal is, and this is true of the Canaanites. The, the goal is the problem is not the Canaanites. The problem is the ideology. The problem is their sexual immorality. The problem is their idolatry that could lead the Israelites astray. So once you've defanged the uh, the Canaanites, removed all of their religious paraphernalia and so forth, that kind of takes the the identity markers away from them. It's kind of like what you see going on in Nazi Germany. Once you get rid of the Nazi hierarchy, you get rid of these symbols, you get rid of the flags, you get rid of the monuments and so forth. Well, all you have left are the, you know, the German people that weren't killed in the war. And that's what, as they say, that's what it means to haram an identity. They've removed the, the significant element that is at issue namely Nazism, that has been such a pernicious threat throughout the world. Once you've removed that, the, the problem isn't with the German people per se, but it's so long as they cling to Nazism that that becomes the, that becomes the threat. So that's an analogy that they use in talking about the Canaanite warfare, and maybe that's helpful here uh, for uh, our listeners. I think, that's, I think that's super helpful. Yeah, thank you. I, I have to just add, Paul, the, the one thing on uh, y that you include in the book that I— I have to mention is this little parable from the philosopher Eleanor Stump, which I think is particularly helpful here. Um, if, if, if you don't mind me adding ahead, this, sure. uh, Stump 
asks us, I'm just going to read from you here. Stump asks us to imagine an intelligent being, Max, from a far distant world in which all sentient beings never get seriously sick and none ever dies. Max is then enabled to view a video of events inside a large city hospital on Earth where the chief of staff is a surgeon. Upon seeing the video, Max is filled with moral indignation at the doctors who plunge sharp objects into human beings, first to render them helpless and then to slice them open with sharp knives. The patients appear to leave the hospital in far worse shape than when they came in. And, uh, and Stump then goes on to kind of apply this to the, to the Canaanite question. I, th- I think that's quite a helpful analogy. It, it reminds me, uh, I'll, I'll add this one thing and then we'll move on to our, our last question. It just reminds me of a point from Oliver Donovan's book, Resurrection and Moral Order, where he says, when we read of the conquest of Canaan, um, we need... Uh, paraphrasing a bit here, we need to understand the the Christological significance of these Mm -hmm. events, and we can do so only if we suspend the moral question that we immediately want to put to them. So what O'Donovan is saying is that what we need to do is resist the urge to forefront, front end, the moral question. We have to to keep that that kind of reflexive... um, uh, moral question suspended as hard as it is. So we don't either respond in indignant protest or in uh, O'Donovan's word, sophistic justification. Um, and, and and I think Stump's uh, kind of parable there is, is a helpful reminder um, that, that you bring out that, that actually um, there might just be more going on here uh, than, 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 than meets the eye. So um, Indeed. Uh, Paying attention, Paul, to to our our time. So I wonder if I could just end uh, by asking, um, what do you think we might be losing if every jot and tittle of Old Testament law were spliced from our Bibles? Um, What sort of world might have emerged? What kind of lives might we have found ourselves living were it not for Israel's law? Well, I'm reminded of the mentioned uh, by the atheist uh, philosopher Jürgen Habermas from Germany, who says that it was the Judaic ethic of justice and the Christian ethic of love that has given to our world today the notion of democracy, of equality before the law, and all sorts of democratizing goods that have come to us through that heritage. And he says that there is no other explanation for it. And so I think that we we do see that in the uh, you know, in the law that Jesus is, of course, these were Jesus' scriptures. Uh, Jesus was drawing from them. And even when he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus was not rejecting the law of Moses or the law of just retribution he was he was rejecting a misuse of it he's not saying it was written uh or something like that he was but i'm telling you he's saying you have heard it said uh which is different from what just the chapter earlier in matthew chapter 4 where he's talking to satan saying uh you know it is written it is written it is written so jesus is speaking against a misuse of the law of retribution when it's being applied to personal relationships you did this to me i'm going to get you back taking matters into your own hands taking vengeance uh keep in mind that in the old testament uh there is a call to love your enemy uh, Proverbs says, you know, if your enemy is hungry, uh, feed him if he's thirsty to give him to drink. So it wasn't as though that was alien and Jesus just came up with that in the New Testament. Uh, no, even in the law of Moses, you have mention of the, uh, you know, if your enemy's you know, ox is stuck, uh, help your enemy, personal enemy, help him get his ox out of the ditch. So there is this kind of a you know, you know, you know, the the whole idea of um, you know loving one's enemy uh, is not something that Jesus came up with, but we see it embedded within the law itself. So Jesus is actually drawing out certain themes from the law, 
acknowledging, yes, Matthew 19, 8, that there are certain things that are not ideal, that, that are a departure from God's ideals of creation. Uh, but we see within the law something that also, you know, Paul says the law is good. Uh, it is holy. It is spiritual. And so we, we see that in the law of Moses, there's a lot of carryover from the law that comes to us as Christians. Uh, so even when it comes to the issue of homosexuality, you know, same-sex uh, sexual activity, Paul is drawing from Leviticus 18 and 20, using that same word from the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, and applying it within the framework of, say, Corinth, and, and when Paul's writing to, in, to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, that these things carry over into the New Testament, that sexual ethic that is still there, that you see uh, that, you know, so, so again, uh, there, there is so much that we could unpack here. We, we see some, of course, glimmers of things. We see a lot of institutions in the law of Moses. We talk. We see sacrifice. We see uh, the Holy of Holies. We see the Ark of the Covenant. We see the priesthood and so forth. And these are actually foreshadowings of what uh, is to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that we would lose the bigger picture. It would just be kind of like uh, not having a context for making sense out of so much in the Old Testament. If we were to remove the law, uh, we would make very, we would ha not have a whole lot to go on in terms of making sense of some of those things that were such a staple in in, in ancient Israel's uh, you know way of life. So we have something that builds the context for us, that helps us to see how God shapes a nation and prepares it for the coming of the Messiah, and how we can now make sense of the death of Jesus based on our understanding of what's going on in the law of Moses, and so on. So we could say a lot more than that, but perhaps those are a few uh, snippets to consider. It's great. Paul, you, sir, are a deep well of insights about the scriptures, and I'm so grateful it. that you've you've taken the time to uh, to come on and chat with me. This has been a a, 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 a difficult conversation in some ways, but uh, but I think a, a really um, satisfying one. Thanks for for coming on and chatting. I appreciate it. Been great to be with you. You too. Well, folks. Um, this here discussion ain't been a walk in the park, but I hope you found it helpful. Um, again, we've, we've really, as I've said, just highlighted a few select themes. Um, Paul's very kindly synthesized uh, a number of points um, succinctly for us. Uh, but his book, on the other hand, it's, it's, a, it's a concise but wide-ranging reference work that's going to be enormously helpful for anyone trying to come to grips with a wide variety of biblical issues or especially specific biblical texts. So don't let this chat uh, be a substitute for engaging Paul's work yourself. I, I, I hope it'll just be a, 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 um, an, an appetizer to, to whet your appetite. Paul Copen's most recent book, the focus of our discussion today, is entitled, Is God a Vindictive Bully? Reconciling Portrayals of God in the Old and New Testament, published just last year with Baker Academic and available wherever you secure your tomes. Uh, in the meantime, don't be shy digging into tough texts. Uh, praise God for people like Paul who come alongside the church to help us understand things that are so easily misunderstandable. And whatever you do, don't forget persons matter more than stuff. Says it right there in the law. All right, it's been good. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Sam Forniker, and you've been listening to the Ridley Institute Podcast.